Greetings, 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 and welcome back to your favorite podcast, The Africanist. I am your host, Bambanjai, and today I have the pleasure to welcome another special guest. Her name is Joelle Cabrita, and Dr. Cabrita is an associate professor of African history at Stanford University and the Susan Ford Dorsey Director of the Center for African Studies. She's also a senior researcher, research associate in the Department of Historical Studies at the University of Johannesburg. Her work focuses on religion, gender, and the politics of knowledge production in Africa and globally. Dr. Cabrita is the author of Text and Authority in the South African Nazareta Church and her new book is entitled Written Out, The Silencing of Regina Elana Twala, Ohio University Press, 2023. This book is a biography of an important figure unjustly written out of history. And today we are going to talk about this wonderful book, Written Out, The Silencing of Regina Elana Twala. Dr. Cabrita, welcome to The Africanist. Thank you so much, Bamba, and thank you for the invitation to be here. I'm I'm really excited about our conversation today. Well, first of all, let me say that I really enjoyed reading your book. It's thank you. Thank you so much. I'm yes. delighted to hear that. In this work, you unearth the story of an outstanding South African woman named Regina Twala. Who was Regina Twala and why is her story important? Yeah, well, you know, Regina Twala is someone who I knew nothing about before starting uh, my research and then writing the book. So, you know, she's an interesting case of a biographical subject to whom, you know, there's now a full length book biography of her but about whom, you know, the ordinary public and even scholars of African history know practically nothing. So she's not someone who had a reputation that preceded her. It's not like, you know, writing a biography of um, Winnie Mandela or a another kind of very celebrated figure in African history. Mm -hmm. This really was kind of beginning to discover step by step just what an extraordinary person, person Twala was. Um, so in my book, I show that she was one of the pioneering African nationalist leaders um, of the 20th century, both in South Africa and in Eswatini. Uh, in Eswatini, she was involved in founding the country's first political party in 1960. Um, she was invariably the sole woman to be involved in politics to stand for election and so on in Eswatini. And in addition to this really important political career, I also argue that she's a, a incredibly significant literary figure, that she wrote as many as five different books in her lifetime, all of them remained unpublished, and she also wrote hundreds of articles for newspapers in both South Africa and Eswatini. Mm -hmm. So both in terms of her politics and also in terms of her literary significance, this is this is a serious person you know this is a historically and intellectually and aesthetically significant person mm -hmm. uh, who i felt really needed a full-length treatment of their life excellent now you mentioned that 
you you were not familiar with the name uh, before you um, took this endeavor. So what inspired you to write a whole monograph about Twala? Yeah, you, you know, I think my book is fulfilling a, a dual function. On the one hand, it's both a, a biography of this, you know, very significant figure in, in 20th century African history. But on the other hand, it's a broader meditation or reflection on the politics of knowledge in Africa and, you know, more broadly, I would say. And it's a reflection on why it is that certain figures come to be renowned, celebrated, memorialized, have statues erected in their honor, you know, have their names on coins and stamps and so on. And yet other figures who objectively may have done just as much in their lifetime uh, drop out of sight, drop out of memory, drop out of history, drop out of memorialization. So it, it, it's that kind of twofold goal that inspired me to write this book, both telling her story, but also reflecting on why it is that we don't know her story. Why it is that this biography is is the, the first attempt to bring her to some kind of public consciousness or prominence. And what are the forces that have gone into writing Twala out of history uh, so effectively? Mm -hmm. You mentioned that Twala, despite being a prominent public and political figure, uh, during her lifetime, she also did a lot of work for other scholars, especially mm -hmm. uh, Western scholars. Yet her name was also systematically written out of those um, research that she conducted for prominent scholars, mostly, as you say in your book, white and, and men. Can you tell us more about that? Yes, absolutely. So, in fact, um, Twala's connection to a European scholar is actually how I first came to know about her, um, because I was doing some research at that point in connection with my second book, um, which was a history of Zionism, which is an indigenous African form of Christianity, uh, very prominent in Southern Africa. Um, and one of the most prominent scholars is a Swedish historian uh, called Banks Sunkler. So I, as I was writing um, my book about Zionism, I decided that I would go to Uppsala in Sweden, where Bengt Sunkler's archives were. <clears throat> and I would um, look through Bengt Sunkler's papers in an effort to discover his research materials, his research notes, and so on, from when he'd been researching Zionism in South Africa in the 40s and 50s and 60s. So I, I went to Uppsala, where he spent most of his career, and I was looking through his papers, and there was a lot of really interesting material. And then I came uh, upon a series of letters um, consisting of research reports uh, that had been sent to Sunkel in the late 1950s from Eswatini, which was then called Swaziland. And the author identified themselves as Artwala. So there was no first name, there was no indication of whether they were a man or a woman just Artwala, who was writing from an address in, in Eswatini, then Swaziland. Mm -hmm. And I was very, very struck by the the tone and the content and the, you know, if I can use this word, just the caliber of the research materials. This was clearly someone who was a trained anthropologist, 
Mm-hmm. They knew about the anthropological literature of the day. They used footnotes. They cited other scholars. Um, they were incredibly familiar with the local Swati context. They knew a huge amount about Zionism. And they just struck me as this kind of very um, articulate, confident scholar. And mm-hmm. this this to me seemed a bit of a mystery because why was it that I had never heard of this person? Eswatini is a very small country. Um, it's unusual, it was unusual in the 1950s to have trained Swati anthropologists. And I thought surely I would have heard of this person, but I hadn't I hadn't heard anything. So as soon as I got to Eswatini, I started making inquiries amongst people saying, um, I've discovered this really interesting figure. It seems like they're an anthropologist. Their name was Artwala. Mm-hmm. Uh, has anyone heard of her? Oh, sorry, heard of them. So at this point, I didn't realize that this was a woman. Mm-hmm. And just person after person, you know, kind of looked at me blankly and said, no, we've we've never heard of her. So it was, you know, only through then coming into contact with someone who had attended Twala's church in our hometown that I, I kind of made the connection and started piecing together the puzzle and realizing this was actually Regina Twala. But I think it's very fitting that, kind of sadly fitting that my introduction to Twala was mediated through the work and the archives of this white European scholar, because I think it kind of exemplifies the way in which Twala's legacy and her name, both during her lifetime and and posthumously, have been kind of gatekept or managed by, by white academics. And Actually, as I began, you know, researching Twala and also reading more of Bain Sinclair's research materials, I made the, you know, very startling discovery that, in fact, Bain Sinclair's published work uh, lent very heavily upon Twala's research materials, even actually going into the territory of plagiarism. So that there were several passages in Bain Sinclair's published book on Zionism that more or less word for word replicated the research materials that Twala had sent to him without any acknowledgement whatsoever that this was actually the work of another scholar rather than mm. um, so a very um you know a very sad very mm-hmm. sad unjust story of um Twala's intellectual labor being appropriated um without her knowledge and used to kind of bolster and build the career of a very prominent white scholar in in the global north. say more about the process the research your research process like coming into contact with this name that was unfamiliar to you but also to people in Swatini and then at the end come up with you know a a a a whole monograph about them so what was the research process your research process like how did you manage to find 
more information about her? Yeah, I mean, it, it was just kind of um, lucky chance discovery after lucky chance discovery. As I said, I finally found um, this woman in Eswatini who, who had known Twala and had been connected to her through church. Um, and then I think the next kind of lucky break that I had in my research um, that really changed the, the the scale of the project, that really made me realize that I had enough material to, to write a full anthography, um, is that I discovered that Twala had left behind a truly remarkable um, correspondence. So over the course of 30 years, between the 1930s and the 1960s, when she died, mm-hmm. Twala had exchanged nearly a thousand letters, largely with her second husband, a man called Dan Twala. And Bamba, if we have time, we can speak a bit more about Dan Twala, both as an individual yes, yes. in his own right and Twala's husband, because he he's a figure who needs a biography for himself. He's mm-hmm. very, very interesting and significant. Um, but purely by chance, I had made the discovery that there was this collection of letters. Um, I had seen letters referenced in an unpublished conference paper Mm-hmm. Um, by an ethnomusicologist of um, South Africa who was actually interested in Dan Twala, not in Regina. Um, and I started kind of reaching out feelers. I contacted this ethnomusicologist. I said, I, I see you're referencing um, this body of letters. Do you have any idea where they are? And he said, try Tim Cousins. Now, Tim Cousins, for those people who know South African history, was a very prominent um, historian of South Africa who passed away suddenly a few years ago. Mm-hmm. So then kind of again putting out feelers, I got the contact for his widow um, and I wrote to her and I, you know, it was kind of a shot in the dark. I didn't really expect to get anything back. But I said, you know, I'm I'm interested in someone called Regina Twala. I have a feeling that your husband may have done some research on her, on her husband, Dan. And I have a feeling there might be some letters. Is is there anything that you can tell me about this? Um, and this this individual immediately said, "Oh yes, there's boxes of the Twala letters in my my late husband's study. You're welcome to come and see them." Mm. So at this point, I was living in Eswatini, so I quickly make plans to go to Johannesburg, where where the house was, and um, I was just confronted with this kind of historian's dream of two boxes stuffed with as I said nearly a thousand letters and just kind of you know my excitement as I started going through them and realizing just what a unique resource this was that we had pretty much the entire love letters of a couple preserved over a 30-year period you know I I think there are few collections in history certainly in African history um, that kind of can live up to that Um, so those letters, I think, enabled me to write a biography that that meshed together the public with the private, that it wasn't only Twala as kind of a political figure mm-hmm. on a public stage, you know, writing for newspapers and so on. But also they gave me insight into Twala as a person, Twala as a woman, um, the unfolding, the development of her love affair, um, you know, her falling out with um, both of her husbands. She was married and divorced her first husband and also lived separate from Dan Twala for the last decade or so of her life. So just mm-hmm. those letters enabled me as a biographer to build up a much more complex, nuanced picture of, of her interior self, um, mm-hmm. as well as her kind of public political persona. Mm-hmm. 
Wow, that's that's fascinating. Now, yeah, it it was a very um, it was a very fortunate discovery that kind of really made the book possible. Yeah. So, who is who's Dan Twala now? <laughs> yeah, Dan Dan Twala. Um, if anyone's listening who's interested in South African sports history, Dan Twala is is in need of a scholar to write his biography. So mm-hmm. Dan Twala, um, you know, probably his most famous role is that for about um, 25 years, he headed up an organization in Johannesburg called the Bantu Sports Club, um, which was started in the 1930s by white philanthropists and industrialists and the city municipality in Johannesburg in South Africa. And it was part of, you know, this very conservative push on the part of white authorities in South Africa to using and mobilizing sports and leisure activities more broadly to try and quell or neutralize radical politics. So it was thought that if you kept people busy with kind of wholesome, uplifting activities like soccer and tennis and so on, um, that they wouldn't stray into the realm of politics and wouldn't be kind of radicalized. So, you you know, I I don't want to misportray it. There was a profoundly conservative vision at the core of Mm -hmm. this club. Um, And Dan Twala, who was himself a a very talented uh, sportsman, he played soccer as as a young man. His brother was a professional soccer player. He became the kind of immensely popular, charismatic, uh, much-loved manager of the club, Mm -hmm. as I said, for, you know, I think it was nearly 30 years. And under his leadership, really built up the club into this hub of sociability, leisure um, in downtown Johannesburg. And I think the club was kind of a who's who of of black Johannesburg society in terms of who passed through its doors. It was very closely linked to an adjacent organization called the Bantu Men's Social Center, Mm -hmm. uh, which was a broader club for reading. It had a library, it hosted lectures, it hosted dances, concerts. So again, a kind of very important hub for the, the black middle classes um, of the city. Dan was also very interested in theater and acting. Um, he, uh, in conjunction with the famous South African playwright, Herbert Dlomo, he founded um, an organization called the Bantu Dramatical Society. And they host, they put on plays, they produce plays that were held um, at the club and at the center. And he himself also had an acting career. He starred in a number of old black and white films that were made in Johannesburg. Um, and then in his later life, he became he became kind of a fixer for foreign directors who were coming to South Africa to make films. So one example of this is the 1950s version of Alan Payton's novel, Cry the Beloved Country. Dan Twala was actually the fixer, um, procuring for the director extras, helping him track down talent. Uh, Dolly. Uh, Radeba, for example, Dan Twala was the one of the links by which um, he found her for a film. So he, he had this kind of very prolific, multifaceted career in the arts, the sports, in kind of leisure in in South Africa, all the way through from, you know, the 20s, um, really, I'd say until the 70s, when he um, kind of slowed down a bit. Mm-hmm. So a, a very historically kind of interesting figure who gives insight into histories of sports, histories of culture, histories of theatre, histories of film in South Africa. Now, coming back to, to the book, you your book invokes um, 
the important issues of positionality, uh, but also historical erasure and academic appropriation of other people's work. So how prevalent were these symptoms during Twala's lifetime? And also to contextualize it in our contemporary era, how should academics today engage with these issues, especially when conducting research in places uh, that are foreign to them? Yeah, I mean, I, I think this is really the million dollar question. And I, I think, you know, if only we could say that these were issues that related to Twala's day and, you know, are no longer applicable in the present day in 2023. But I think the sad truth is that many of the issues that Twala grappled with during her lifetime, you know, gatekeeping, territorialism, appropriation, exploitation, plagiarism, um, you know, the racism of the academy, the racism of the publishing world, the sexism of the academy, the sexism of the publishing world. I think all of these um, inequalities continue to characterize present day academia and knowledge production. Um, you, you, you know, I, I sadly, we, we still hear of cases of scholars work um, being appropriated by others. Um, and within African studies as a field, there's obviously a very um, live ongoing discussion and debate about the role of white scholars in African studies. And that certainly in the US, there's been a historic um, overrepresentation of white scholars um, studying the African continent. And so what does it mean that knowledge about Africa has largely, certainly in the US, been in the hands of scholars who themselves are not African and who visit the continent in sort of these, you know, fleeting research trips, all the while um, leaning upon the intellectual work of research assistants, for example, um, who are from Africa. So the kind of power differential underlying the kind of present day production of knowledge about Africa, I think is you know, sadly, just as just as relevant an issue as it was during during Twala's time. Um, you know, what we should do about this, I think, is is kind of far more complex to say than it is to diagnose the problem. I mean, I I know African studies as a whole is already doing a great deal about it. I know there have been calls for the African Studies Association in the US to be provincialized that it should be called the African Studies Association of the US rather than kind of trying to present itself as somehow the authoritative body that represents African studies as an intellectual discipline. Um, I know that there have been new associations um, started recently or old associations kind of revived and given a new new um, breath of life that are based on the African continent. Um, so African studies is kind of rooted and grounded and centered on the continent. Um, and I, I think these kinds of discussions and these kinds of decisions and kind of relocating or shifting the geography of how we study the continent are a really vital part of, of the process of creating a more equitable, just and representative um, academic climate for the study of Africa. I, I think there also probably needs to be more explicit reflection about how we how we engage research assistants as scholars from outside of the continent. Um, 
you know, what are the pay scales? What are the terms of work? What are the protocols in place to ensure that the intellectual contribution of assistance is not downgraded to, you know, these sort of very mm, subsidiary junior roles, but actually there can be quite significant intellectual input coming from people who may be mislabeled as assistants. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I, I think certainly in history, I feel like reliance upon research assistants is, is not really an area that is given much visibility, that research assistants are kind of invisibilized. They're just these faceless people who may get a very brief mention in our acknowledgements but their role in identifying bodies of material, sifting through those bodies of material, often making really significant intellectual choices about what to photograph or what to focus on and what to discard. Um, and this this kind of really crucial component of the research process, I think is just kind of passed over in favor of the solo academic who writes the book, who gets their name affixed to the title page. Mm-hmm. And that, to me, seems to underestimate the complexity of the research process and the way in which many more people than just the named author are are playing a role in shaping the the kind of intellectual work that goes into the book. So, Tuala's scholarly work was systematically rejected by magazine editors and white-run presses in South Africa, uh, resulting in you know stacks of, of unpublished work. So how much did, I just want you to talk more about how much did racism and misogyny uh, play in that mistreatment? Yeah, I mean, one of the things I... I... I chart or I um, detail in my book is is just her um, persistent rejection from the literary intellectual publishing establishment of, of the day that, you know, the first book she wrote was turned down by the South African Department of Education, which was one of the main publishers for black writers. Um, her Many of her magazine articles in her early years were turned down. I, I think her biggest disappointment um, that sadly kind of went with her to her deathbed was the fact that she had been trying to publish her final book, um, a collection of ethnographic essays on sweaty women in the 1960s. She'd been trying to publish this final book for years before she died early of cancer in 1968. And even on her deathbed, these very heart-rending scenes where Twala was was kind of frantically writing letters to people she knew who were connected to potential publishers saying, I, I'm about to die. I really want to get my book out into the world before I die. Can you take it? Mm-hmm. Um, and again, sort of rejection. So, you know, I, I also think in quite a bit of detail about what the causes were for all of these rejections. And I, I think racism was, was certainly at play in many of them. Um, I would say that sexism was a factor as well, that certainly for Twala's first rejection from the Department of Education, mm-hmm. this very well-placed clique of black male writers in South Africa of the 1930s and 1940s. And they also kind of closed 
closed doors against uh, Twala and, you know, banded up against her. And I, I'd say sexism and sort of um, perceptions that women had no place in the literary world, um, definitely at play there. Um, she also had uh, a very negative relationship with her, her main intellectual teacher and mentor, the well-known South African anthropologist Hilda Cooper, who taught Twala when she was a university student at Witz in Johannesburg. And as my book shows, Twala was only the second Black woman to ever graduate um, from Witz with a degree. And Cooper taught her anthropology while she was there. And then later on throughout Twala's life, um, acted as her mentor as she was doing ethnographic research in Eswatini in the 40s and 50s. But Twala and Cooper fell out um, as Twala got older, more confident, more critical of white scholars, more critical of mm, white scholarly pretensions to own research areas, research subjects. Cooper at this point was the kind of um, unrivaled queen of Swati ethnography. And um, I think Twala really had a problem with this and, mm -hmm. and thought that that Cooper sort of had no no right to make these kinds of claims. So, you know, after she died, Twala's manuscript was sent to Cooper as her former teacher and mentor with the plea that Cooper would use her own very well-placed connections to try and assist in publication. Mm -hmm. Cooper at this point was a professor of anthropology at UCLA here in the States. Um, but Cooper blocked publication. She she looked at the manuscript and she said, there's nothing of value here. It's it's very disappointing. Nothing here that's worth publishing. Wow. Um, and then the manuscript um, found its way into, into Cooper's papers and was kept in her study for the rest of her life. And then upon Cooper's death in the 1990s, um, was kept with Cooper's other papers in the UCLA archives. So that's actually how I find, found that final manuscript of Twala's because I was looking through Hilda Cooper's papers, again in connection with a different project, and stumbled upon this manuscript and thought, "Wow, this is this is extraordinary. This is a really significant um, contribution," um, but had been sort of silenced really by Cooper um, through mm -hmm. a process that undoubtedly had racism at play in it. I think the final fact in addition, in addition to race and, and gender is, is also politics, that Twala was a very radical figure. And certainly the difficulties that she encountered publishing in Eswatini in the last 20 years of her life had to do with the very critical stance that Twala took, not only towards uh, the British um, colonial rule in Eswatini, Eswatini was a protectorate of Britain, but also was very critical towards the traditional hereditary monarch, Sabuza II. Mm -hmm. uh, and this period in Swati history was, was very um, tumultuous. It was clear that the British would be leaving soon. So there was a lot of discussion about what an independent Swati nation would look like. How would it be ruled? What would be the role of the king, Sabuza II? Would there be a parliamentary democracy? What role would elections and popular representation have? And Twala came out as a as an outspoken opponent of Sabuza, saying that yes, the king should remain, but in a very restrained, reduced role as a as a kind of constitutional monarch, more than a monarch who had actually any power. And this was a very controversial political stance at the day, and actually directly contradicted Hilda Cooper's politics, who was one of Sabuza's most devoted boosters and promoters. 
Mm-hmm. In fact, Cooper wrote the authorized biography of Sabuza um, in the 1970s. Um, and she, in her role, she being Cooper, in her role as an anthropologist, really kind of mobilized the, the, the techniques of ethnography to make this argument that a king, an absolute monarch, was the kind of natural customary state of affairs for the Swati people. Um, and that it was anthropo- anthropologically correct that they were ruled um, by an absolute monarch. And this was how Swati society had always been and should always continue to be. Mm-hmm. So a quite kind of conservative vision of anthropology that led to her, you know, lending support to an extremely dictatorial, tyrannical king. Mm-hmm. And Cooper greatly disliked that her former student, her former protégé, Twala, had come out as an as a very um, articulate, outspoken opponent of traditional governance in Eswatini. I have one amazing letter that I found from Cooper's archives where she was writing to her husband about a dinner party at the American ambassador's house, I think, in Eswatini in the 60s. And she said to her husband, I had the, the bad fortune to be sat next to Mrs. Twala, who's oh, become wow. more, more stupid and more opinionated with every year that passes, <laughs> oh <my God. laughs> which is, you know, very scathing um, dismissal of someone who certainly wasn't stupid, but was absolutely opinionated. And you get a sense of Hilda Cooper's kind of dislike of, of her former student. So I, I think it's complex to go back to your question, was racism a role? Yes, absolutely. But I would say so was sexism and so so was politics really and class mm-hmm. and um you know all of all of Twala's very outspoken stances on those issues Can Twala and and her work be rehabilitated? So you you talked about all these unpublished work that she had, and especially um, her last monograph. So how can historians like you today, I mean, you already did a wonderful job with this book, but how else can she and her work be rehabilitated? Well, you know, Bamba, my initial goal in in this project on Twala was actually to find a publisher for this final book. Um, that mm-hmm. was how I started the project, but I, I came across this manuscript in Cooper's archives and I thought this needs to be brought out to the world. This needs to come to the attention of scholars. And I, I approached a couple of publishers um, in the US uh, who had strong catalogues in African studies and asked them what they thought of it. And you know, people agreed that it was a very interesting project. It was a very interesting book. Twala was clearly significant, but they were concerned on the grounds that that Twala was a completely unknown quantity, that no one knew who this this person was. So the advice I received was to begin with writing her biography, and that once that then had maybe generated a bit bit more publicity and attention for Twala's name, to then approach the task of of publishing Twala's own work. Mm. I mean, I, th- I think that's very sound advice you know mm-hmm. from editors who know exactly how publishing works and it's the advice that I've I've clearly followed um I do also think it's very telling advice you know I can't help but be struck by the irony that Twala's legacy and her name 
have only managed to come to the world through the kind of mediating activity or the gatekeeping activity of another white scholar, myself in this case, and that Twala's name in and of itself hasn't been sufficient to get her own work published, but that I've had to play this kind of, um, as I said, kind of gatekeeping, mediating role, which is, you know, hopefully for the good, you know, hopefully all in the service of getting Twala's name out there. But I still notice the the power dynamics at play um, mm-hmm. in that kind of relationship. So I I am I have had a conversation with with the publisher in South Africa actually about um, bringing out Twala's work, and I'm hopeful that that will go places. And one of the really lovely things about my book coming out is just the number of people who've asked exactly this question, which is, you know, when is the book going to come out? When is Twala's book going to come out? When can we expect to mm-hmm. see it? And, you know, I, I think that's that's the ultimate goal with this, which is for Twala to speak in her own words to her own audiences and not to be forever refracted or mediated or managed through the interpretive work of another figure, another academic. Um, so I, I am hopeful that that will happen. I think it should happen. I think her work is extraordinary. I think she is truly a... Um, important intellectual figure and i i really hope that that will happen at some point in the not too distant future excellent so dear publishers and editors now the biography is out reach out and yeah. get this yeah. get twelve's work published <laughs> absolutely yeah especially those on the continent yeah so yeah uh now i mean i'm always also interested and how, you know, some of the challenges that people face while working on their monograph. I'm in the process of working on my own monograph, and it's always interesting to hear other people's perspectives on some of the obstacles or challenges. So could you share more about that? Yeah, I, I, that's a, a great question to reflect on one's own writing process. I mean, I think it was smooth in the sense of um, I had access to this amazing body of material and I just kind of had to write it. So, you know, I didn't have any obstacles in terms of access or kind of bumps in the road uh, research wise. I think the thing that I found the most challenging is that I was very intentionally setting out to write a quite different book from one that I'd written before. So my previous books, I think, are much more traditional academic monographs. Um, With this book being a biography, I wanted to make it much more readable. I wanted to make it much more kind of story-like because you're telling the story of someone's life. So it has this kind of narrative potential built built into it from the start. I also, I think, felt that the Twala's story was so compelling, so important that it deserved as wide an audience as possible. So I wanted to make sure that I wrote in a way that would make it accessible, that wouldn't just sort of close off readership to only academics who were familiar with certain kind of more technical or jargony types of writing. So I, I think for me, the, the biggest learning curve was just, you know, trying to retrain myself to write in a much more accessible, um, straightforward way than, you know, I usually do as an academic. Um, and to think about, you know, things that academics don't really consider when we write, to think about mood, to think about character, to think about plot, to think about pacing, to think about scene setting. 
um, and to really engage with the kind of craft of writing rather than just treating the words as a vehicle for our ideas, as I think we more commonly do. And it, it was challenging, but it was really, really enjoyable. I actually found it very liberating to to try write in a much more kind of open style. And, you know, I, I wonder if I'll ever want to kind of go back to more traditional academic writing, because I think it, it's so it's so enjoyable to write like that. And also you get more audiences, you get more readers, you you open up the the range of people who can engage with your work and with your findings and with your arguments. And that's very obviously as for the writer, that's that's great. Um, you know, thinking about thinking about gender, thinking about women, thinking about the fact this is obviously a biography of a woman. I'm I'm also a woman, and uh, in the last stages of the book, I actually had my my second son. So the book was, you know, also written while I was pregnant. Um, I think I was doing my copy edits and proofing in the early weeks and months of my son's life. Um, so I think I'll kind of always always remember the process of writing the book for that reason that it's really intertwined with this very you know, special period of, of motherhood and early infancy for a child. Now is the time for um, the other fun questions. <laughs> So, yeah. um, top three novels. Top what three are... novels. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> so, um, you know, I I find these very hard because there's no way that I can ever choose my my ultimate top three novels. I think I, the best I can do is the top three novels um, that I'm kind of currently reading slash thinking about are at the top of my consciousness. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you know, because of my interest in Twala as a literary figure. Combined with another project that I'm doing, uh, which is actually an edited anthology of conversations with um, publishers on the African continent, um, I'm reading a lot of African fiction right now. And as many of your readers will know, African fiction is kind of undergoing this this great um, sort of renaissance revival moment. And there are very many extraordinary uh, female writers coming out of the continent. So I thought I could just name uh, three books that I've recently read um, by by African female writers that that I've absolutely loved. Some are very recent, some aren't. So kind of going back in time, the most recent one uh, is um, by the the Zambian uh, British writer Namwali Serpel, The Old Drift, which mm-hmm. is just a fantastic novel, um, very very rich, very sort of fabulous um, kind of magical realism type of novel, which mm-hmm. I've loved. Um, I've also recently r- read the Nigerian writer Lola Shinoyan's The Secret Lives of Baba Segi's Wives. Um, and actually, I know Lola and I'm working with her for this project that I'm doing on uh, female publishers in Africa. And she is, in addition to being a prize winning author, Lola Shinoyan is also a very important publisher, uh, mm. the founder of Weeda Books in Nigeria. Um, and I just love both the book and her kind of multifaceted literary career that involves writing, editing, mm-hmm. publishing, literary activism, running literary festivals. Um, and I'm just a huge fan of hers. Um, and then the final book is kind of a, a classic 
but obviously still amazing, with, which is a Zimbabwean writer, Tsitsi Dangarangba's Nervous Conditions um, from 1988. And I had the pleasure of, of seeing Tsitsi Dangarangba in the Bay Area, uh, where I live in San Francisco, in conversation with Angela Davis a few weeks ago, um, promoting her, her newest work, which is a collection of essays on uh, Black feminisms. And, you know, I, I think nervous conditions is just an iconic, iconic treatment of gender, colonialism, race and power in Africa. And one that I kind of keep coming back to time after time again. So I think th those would be, you know, my top three novels of, of right now and in terms of the kinds of issues I'm thinking about. Excellent. So next, top three dishes. What are your the top dishes <laughs> that you cannot live without? <laughs> uh, coffee, food group of its own right for a mother. Coffee? Of okay, coffee. coffee will not count. <laughs> coffee because... can't count? Okay. Yeah. Um. Well, I, I will say that I eat a lot of baby food because when you're trying to feed your <laughs> child, you find that like you're on the go, you're shoveling food into their mouth and you mm -hmm. have to feed yourself and, you know, like kind of baby mac and cheese and stuff. Um, <laughs> but in in ideal circumstances, um, I love South Asian food. So I love uh, vegetarian vegetarian cooking with amazing spices and coconut flavors um so south asian food is a is a huge um a huge one for me like curry um, green yellow mustard. yeah i love curries i love green curry yellow curry red curry all of that um i also you know living here in san francisco we have amazing mexican cuisine so i've i've grown to really appreciate and enjoy learning more about the the flavors and the tastes uh, of mexico and then the other thing we have a lot of living in San Francisco um, because of our our very large population here from East Asia, particularly China, uh, is amazing Chinese cuisine. So mm -hmm. dumplings, steamed buns, um, it's just kind of amazing range, Sichuan, Northern Chinese cuisine, amazing range of flavors that, you know, living in England for so long, I just never really experienced or, or came to know about. So for me, my top three foods are, you know, all these kind of entry points into different cultures and different geographies. And, you know, I love learning about cultures through through their foods. So, yeah, that's what I would say, Bamba. Awesome. And the last question, top three places in your bucket oh, list? To travel to. <laughs> I I just want to know more more about the African continent. Um, you know, I grew up in Southern Africa. I grew up in Eswatini. My my family are in Eswatini, South Africa, Mozambique. Um, but I feel that I've traveled much more around the world than I have traveled within Africa. And that seems to me a great shame. So I would love to go to West Africa. So Senegal, Ghana, Yay. Nigeria. These these are all kind of <laughs> on my my top list um you know i would love to i've been to morocco my husband is actually moroccan but i would love to go to other north african countries i'd love to go to algeria to tunisia um so i think it says so much about the the infrastructure of travel within the continent that i think it's actually easier to travel from johannesburg to london or new york uh, in terms of price than it is to travel internally mm -hmm. within the continent and Unfortunately, that's a great shame and you know mm -hmm. 
uh, it shouldn't stop us from when we have the opportunity um, trying to travel within the continent. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, I think you should start with Senegal. And yeah, I would love to yes, go to Senegal. You know, I'm from there. I know. But, um, I think it's a great place. Um, yeah. yeah. So many things to offer. It's yeah. crazy in its own ways, but yeah, um, <laughs> yeah. yeah the you you might like it i'm sure i'm sure yeah. I would love it. <laughs> all right and on that note joel thank you very much for coming to the africanist podcast and sharing your wonderful monograph and i suggest to my audience to go get the book uh written out and uh, published by um Ohio University Press 2023 is an excellent monograph and I hope that you will come back to the podcast to tell Thank us more you. about your work and hopefully Twyla's work will be published soon and you can come back and share more about that too. Thank you and Bamba I just wanted to mention that uh, actually just last month there were, there's been an African edition of the book brought up by Wits University Press in oh, no. Johannesburg, South Africa so um readers readers on the continent are hopefully able to access it easier than if it were just with a, an american press awesome awesome so thank you very much joel and uh, i hope that you have a wonderful weekend thank you so much i really appreciate the chance to be in conversation with you and um thank you again bye yeah and on that note guys i'll give you rendezvous for another episode of the Africanist podcast. In the meantime, stay safe and healthy.